2: Welcome to the Scholarly Communications channel on the New Books Network. My name is Jen Hoyer, and today I am joined by Cynthia Cross, John Wright, and Bongaseni Butalesi, who have all worked together on editing Archives of Times Past, published in 2022 by Witts University Press. Archives of Times Past is an exploration of the archive on Southern Africa's past in the pre-colonial era bringing new ideas about source material and archiving from scholars in southern Africa and elsewhere. It focuses on the question, how do we know or think we know what happened in the times before European colonialism? This book includes essays by by well-known historians, archaeologists, and researchers to engage these questions from a range of perspectives and in illuminating ways. Written from personal experience, they capture how these experts encountered their archives of knowledge beyond the textbook. The essays are written at a time when public discussion about the history of Southern Africa before the colonial era is taking place more openly than at any other time in the last hundred years. Cynthia Cross is an honorary research associate of the History Workshop at the University of the Witzwatersrand, Johannesburg, and an honorary research associate at the Archive and Public Culture Research Initiative at the University of Cape Town. John Wright is Emeritus Professor of History at the University of KwaZulu-Natal and a research associate in the Archive and Public Culture Research Initiative at the University of Cape Town. Bongaseni Butelezzi is the Executive Director of the Public Affairs Research Institute. Cynthia, John, and Bongaseni, welcome to the New Books Network. I would love if we could start off with each of you sharing a little bit about yourselves, where you grew up and completed your studies, how you became interested in and connected with archives, and how all of you connected over writing this book. And Cynthia, maybe we could start with you.
0: Hmm. Thanks, Jen. Thanks for the introduction. I was actually born in Zimbabwe, but moved to Johannesburg as a child with my family. And I studied history at the University of the Witwatersrand, commonly known as WITS and i was encouraged i had never thought of this but i was encouraged to do postgraduate studies and that's where i really encountered the archive and discovered that history was a very exciting discipline i ultimately completed my phd at Wits and i started my working life as a history teacher and then later returned to vids as a lecturer in the history department where i taught for many years Um, i first well i always heard had heard of john because of the James Stewart archive which I came to use in my own teaching and I admired it very much and I found his work very inspiring but because I'm just a few years younger than John and I like to think that I was kind of in the avant-garde of the left and so on and I used to quite often challenge John kind of follow him around to conferences and so on and spring out of my chair and say but Professor Wright <laughs> and uh, so it's quite funny because that's the image I really have and then Um, John approached me saying he had an idea for a book and I thought, well, why on earth is he talking to me after all our arguments over the years? But, uh, of course, that was a fantastically stimulating thing about it. Muguseni, I think I really met through John but I'd also heard of him and read his work. And, um, yeah, so I came to know him later but really appreciate my collegial relationship with him.
2: Thank you. Um, And John?
3: Oh, thanks, Jim. Um, yeah, I grew up in Natal province, as it was then, in South Africa. Now, I was Natal. I studied history at the University of Natal in Pietermaritzburg, and then later at the University of the Witwatersrand. Both my MA thesis and my PhD thesis were in topics in the history of societies before colonialism. So I became interested in archival questions pertaining to that field early on. And I found that I enjoyed archival research and was quite good at it. I enjoyed doing the research and then putting ideas together into a narrative, both the theses that I did at MA level and at PhD level. But of course that's fairly standard for historians to get in at a you know, higher level, doing higher, higher degree theses, get into archival work. Um, I had no particular notion that the making of archive was an important field of study in its own right. And I didn't really start thinking about that until in fact after I'd retired, retired from, I should have said, um, teaching history at the University of Natal in Peter Maritzburg where I was for a long time, I retired from that, and soon after that I was asked, invited by Professor Carolyn Hamilton, who was a long-standing friend and colleague, to join the APC, we can call it, the Archive and Public Culture Research Initiative, that she was setting up at the University of Cape Town, this was, would have been about 2008, 2009, somewhere around there. As to to join the APC as a research um, associate. And very quickly in the APC one was thrown into the deep end of, through Carolyn, not very largely, her work of archival thinking, critical archival thinking, and investigating the whole enormous range of archives that Historians generally use, but particularly the historians of, can I say, I yeah, will call it pre-colonial Southern Africa, shorthand. Although in the book, as you've probably seen, you know, we quite specifically critique that notion of the pre-colonial. Perhaps we can come on to that later on. But anyway, in participating in the workshops and writing of papers, the APC, would learned very quickly a whole range of new ideas about archive and how other people, particularly students, felt about it and the new ideas that they brought from them, the wide range of positions that they occupied, too, that they brought it to these seminars. So, yeah, that's really how I started off on the archive world. And as Cynthia said, I suppose about 2012, you know, I wanted to pick up on a book on a field that I'd long been interested in, and that was confronting stereotypes, colonial-made stereotypes, or colonial-era stereotypes, let's say, about the history of Southern Africa before colonialism, which you want to become more and more aware of, over many years of teaching and reading, but they were still very much around in the new South Africa of the time. And a couple of years later, I approached Cynthia with ideas about the book. And it grew from there. Cynthia was a long-standing colleague at the University of the Whitfathers. I don't remember those arguments, quite honestly. I remember collaborative work and like-minded thinking. Anyway, perhaps you can put it right on that one. And then through the APC was where we both met Amogisemi who was you know, associated, who was working in Cape Town at the time and then ended up in the APC. And yeah, we just took our collaboration from there.
2: Super, thank you. Bongaseni?
1: Thanks, Jim. Um, so I was born and grew up in Northern Wazan Hotel, in the town of Ulundi. Um and I went to university in Durban at the, the then University of Natal. Um, I've never studied history formally, actually. Um, so I always say I, I'm not I'm not a historian. I pretend to be one. Um, I so I, but my interest was um, always in literary studies, and I studied literature uh, actually. But my interest in history goes back uh, a long way, actually, to high school, I would say, where um, I became very interested in what was going on politically in the country, which took me to history, in that I was trying to understand the the political violence that was taking place when I was in high school in the 90s. Um, And to understand that, I then found myself um reading um right back to the Anglo-Zulu War, right? reading right back to the early 19th century. Um and then later on when I went to university and started investigating uh praise poetry's Bongo and his Tagazil, I came across um John's work and came across um the James Stewart Archive which um, at first I had great difficulty engaging because um, it, was a, it was fashionable at the time in the late 90s and early 2000s uh, to dismiss a work like the James Stewart archive as um, colonial era work uh, that was produced by um, a colonial magistrate. Uh, it was very fashionable to disavow all of that work. It was really only later uh, when I did my PhD at Columbia that I worked with a historian, uh, Marsha Wright, who then made me properly begin to engage with and think about uh, the James Stewart Archive. And when I came back to South Africa uh, to do fieldwork for my PhD, that was in 2009. In fact, that's where John and I first met. Uh, John, you probably don't remember that. Um, I got the job I had in Cape Town, first job in Cape Town, while we were driving through um, uh, the border uh, at the border between Pumalang and, uh, and Western Natal, with a bunch of farmers who were showing us some of the the historical places where some of the wars uh, in the early nineteenth century may have taken place, um, and then sort of later on moved to Cape Town and joined the APC, where I got working with John more fully, um, and again as, as uh, both John and Cynthia have explained. Um, The APC is where our collaboration really began and where I got to meet uh, uh, Cynthia as well. So, yeah, um, that's been the journey. Uh, The journey, my journey has been uh, particularly with the James Stewart Archive, which um, I've I've worked with ever since um, um, I got to know it as a, a student in Durban.
2: Oh, that's fantastic. Thank you. So turning to archives of times past, uh, this book is organized in six sections and the four chapters of part one, First Thoughts About the Archive, are all co-authored by the group of you. I felt that they put forward a lot of the main goals that you had for this book. Could you share a few of the goals that you lay out for yourselves in that section?
0: Well, as John said, His initial idea was to do a book that confronted the standard stereotypes that one finds, especially in pre-colonial history. And perhaps we will have to explain why I'm putting quotation marks around Um, pre-colonial. So, for example, Shaka as the savage king who devastated the whole of southern Africa, conveniently emptying the land for white people to come along and settle in it um but those kinds of particularly racial stereotypes um uh, you know around the bushmen and with phys- with an emphasis on physical attributes of people and so on and so john was quite keen to do something which would challenge these stereotypes by then i'd been teaching for quite a long time at school and all of, also at university where i did a lot of teacher education and to be honest i just felt quite cynical about how effective a book like that would be because i felt that i'd been doing a lot of that my whole life and to me it didn't seem that it had very much impact so we began talking and thinking about it and one of the things that struck me is i was at university myself as an undergraduate in a very exciting cutting-edge time of history and people were writing a lot about times past and involved in theory about how to conceptualize societies of that era and so on and to show how they changed and so on and yet and that was in the 70s and yet by the 2000s there was so little of that that it made its way into school but also university curricula so that was how I started to think about why that was and how we might change that situation so then I began to be very interested in the idea of doing a book that would assist teachers and students to think about um, pre-colonial history and to have ways of finding out about it. So that was my angle. Thank you.
2: I don't know if um, John and Bongasini, you wanted to add anything to that?
3: Yeah, just to be add to that. Yeah, what Cynthia is saying is that we were moving, in fact, from the question of what happened in the past and how to get it right. Moving away from that kind of notion, that language. To, well, how do we know about the, the past before colonialism in the first place? It seems you know, a much bigger question. There um, is a question designed to vex students in many ways because what students want to be told is what happened in the past. And more and more, we are moving away from trying to answer that question. But towards a sort of answer, well, you know, we're just historians. We don't know what happened in the past. What we can do is point you to the sources on the past. Now go and look at them. And also, we're moving against this sort of common notion that look at them and make up your own minds. No, we don't want you to make up your own minds. Just keep reading and thinking, reading and thinking. It's a point that we emphasize in the book. You know, It's an ongoing process, never-ending process, is thinking about the archive. Um, and then accompanying that, I think this was Cynthia's influence coming through, and also the APC. Moving from the notion of just... A concern with particular sources like the ones that we cover in section two of the book to the broader question of, of the the actual explorers themselves the, the the researchers and their human adventures along the way of getting into the archive it wasn't just a matter of taking the archive for granted it was investigating how the archive was made, but also how researchers responded to it because that shapes very much what they take away from the archive and the way that they write history, you know, their own backgrounds, where they're coming from, what's shaped their own ideas as researchers. And that's what we're moving towards you know, in this book, encouraging people to write about their own experiences as explorers.
1: So I, I would add to that. I think that um, I think um, I'm, I'm in my own interest. In part, was in my PhD, I was looking at uh, a group of people that were reconstructing identities um, and identities that had been erased over 200 years or suppressed, at least. And what what became very interesting to me, um, someone trying to study the 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 sources again that people were using was the question of, yeah, what were people using uh, to try and reconstruct these identities, and where were they finding the praise poetry that they were trying to reconstruct? And um, that led, yeah, to a string of sources over 150 years that people were turning to, and um, it became quite interesting to me to. Look at what those sources were and look at the circumstances under which those sources themselves did come into being. Um, and look at the ways in which in the present, you know, for purposes of, um, the, of, of present projects, people were drawing on those past sources. And that, those are the kind of uh, um, questions I was interested in that led to these explor- explorations. Um, and to the kind of conversations that um, we ha- we have had over many years at the APC.
2: Fantastic. Um- Well, John, you already mentioned the second part of the book a little bit. Maybe we can move into that. Parts two through six of the book feature contributions by other authors, and particularly in part two, commentaries and conversations, these dive into analysis of a variety of primary and secondary sources commonly used to think about South African history. Uh, and you wrote earlier in the book that the question of how to engage critically with source material influenced by colonial ways of thinking is really at the heart of this, as you just said. So could you share a few examples of p- how part two can prompt us to reimagine, re-examine our engagement with source material and with the archive?
3: Who is that directed to? First
2: Any of you. Whoever would like to share.
1: Yeah. There, would you like to go? Cynthia?
0: I think that um, you or should start us off, then I'll come in if necessary.
1: Okay.
3: Well, let me pick up with chapter nine, then. It's one that I've written, unpacking olden times. I think it's a fairly typical example of what we were doing in that second section. You know, olden times in Zululand and Natal, was written by a missionary historian, Alfred Bryant, and published in 1929. After he'd been doing 40 years of research into what he called Zulu history. It was 700 pages of really tight packed, no it's not analysis, tight packed synthesis of as much as he could find on the oral accounts of dozens and dozens of the little groups and the big groups that lived in Basuna Mutel before colonialism. And so after 1929, it became a standard work. It was just easy for people, both white scholars and later on black scholars, simply to pick it up, open it, and largely read it off the page as not necessarily the truth but as the most conveniently available account and in that way it became entrenched right through the the study of the natal region the guazuna natal region before colonial times and it remained the 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 primary source the primary secondary source i can put it that way the main secondary source right up until the 1970s when the first volumes of the James Stewart archive that we've spoken about already started appearing and providing the basis for challenging a lot of what Bryant had written if students readers writers academics were prepared to do the research necessary in the Stewart archive which is it's a difficult thing to use much more difficult than Bryant but Bryant's still today I mean, for 40, 50 years on, it still remains an indispensable source. Not so much as a a correct or right account in its own right, but as a source material. It's an archival work now with lots of little bits and pieces that can be teased out of it with careful, critical thinking. And the chapter I wrote was really about Bryant and how he put that work together, and then he... Its strengths, how it came to be published, its strengths, its weaknesses, and why there is a great need to be careful with it in using it, and the same sort of a points apply to the other works in that section. Mafuze, um Abantu abamnyama, the basic source source book, synthesis book in this is it, published in 1922. Rachel King, An Archive in an Old Tin Trunk. That chapter is essentially about David Frédéric Elamberger. He was one of the French-Swiss missionaries in Lesotho in the late 1900s. And in 1912, published in The History of the Basotho, which today, more than a century later, is still a standard work. If people just you know, largely dip into that much by way of critical analysis. Unlike Bryant, Bryant has been overtaken by Stuart. These other works, in many cases, have not been overtaken in a similar kind of way. So they're still used too uncritically in our views. And then there was Making Tribal Histories, the work of Paul Leonard Breutz, a controversial character who came out to South Africa from Germany after the Second World War. And became a major ethnographer and historian of Swana speaking peoples. Again, his works are very largely used uncritically because there's nothing else in many cases. And then, you know, chapter 8 took a slightly different turn. Here we approached Sikiba Kila de to write on his own researches. Into Nicholas von Varmudo, who'd been a major ethnographer ethnography in South Africa from the nineteen twenties right through to the nineteen sixties. And he'd written again a number of works, which are simply standard works today and largely used critically. In the end, Sekiba wasn't able to find the time to actually get down to writing, so we ended up having a couple of very interesting conversations with him, Cynthia and I did, and it's those that we've put into the book. So it's that kind of work that Section Two of Archives of Time Past tries to do. Look critically at what remain standard sources in in a century on.
2: Great, thank you. And then looking at part three, Bongasini, I think this is something that you, spoke to a little earlier as well. Um, This section is called Becoming Explorers, and it engages with contributors who are reflecting on their initial engagement with archives and their personal process and learning. Could you share more about some of the material covered in part three?
1: I mean, I think the the, the key thing um, for us is, again, this question of What journeys um, have different contributors had um, as scholars uh, with uh, these particular archives that they work on? Um, Partly, uh, I mean, I think as has been said, as a way of demonstrating that archives themselves are not static, um, right? Demonstrating that any archive one engages with um, was made in a particular moment by a particular set of people under particular circumstances. In order to be able to, to work fruitfully with that archive, uh, one, one can't simply go and uh, uh, extract nuggets of fact, um, as John, I think, has, has talked about. But one also needs to go further to think about the circumstances under which uh, that, that archive came into existence. And so the explorers that we um, um, have in, uh, the contributors um, that became explorers in, in part 3, um, these different authors, um, Mucha Parara Musenwa, uh, Lisa Krill, Duguya Kenzov, who himself, of course, on the James Stewart archive, and how they themselves have come to work or have worked with these archives. Uh, over their careers. So that's chapters 10 to 13 uh, in part 3. So they, they explore um, how their own careers have unfolded and how archives have come um, um, to define their careers or engagement with particular archives, um, their own changing ideas about those particular archives at different times. Um, so Chang Samoa, for example, uh, his chapter deals with um, how he became an environmental historian, um, thinking about the way in which um, na- I mean, studying nature is something that was in some ways not part of um, the, the, the world in which he grew up, and he had to journey into uh, thinking about nature as an archive uh, of sorts. Um, so I think the the, the yeah I think uh, um, that's what we were trying to get at here that um, the, the the person working with uh, a particular archive also comes at it from um, a very particular location themselves and those the journey with the archives itself with an archive itself I think becomes uh, um, uh, something that. Um, both uh, makes the person in certain ways, but also the archive itself in those journeys is something that comes to take on particular meanings uh, for the person. I'm gonna ask John to talk about his own contribution to that section on the James Stewart archive.
3: Well, I've already said quite a lot, so I'll keep it short. Um, Yeah, that chapter of mine just simply describes how I became involved in working on the James Stewart archive from 1971 onwards. It's more than 50 years ago. Wow. And still ongoing, actually, work that Mongeseni and I are doing. Or, yeah, in between times. Um, Look. James Stewart was a, <laughs> excuse me. a magistrate and colonial official in Colonial Natal in the 1890s into the early 20th century and from about 1897 to 1922, he spent much of his spare time in deliberately approaching knowledgeable Africans about the past. Before colonial times, Well, and during colonial times, actually as well, I nice mustn't get that wrong. And discussing their knowledge of the past in great detail, and then making notes of what they told him, sometimes verbatim, but more often a paraphrasing of what they were telling him, because he couldn't write down everything. And those notes. Managed to keep safe, you know, for the rest of his life in the tower, and for the rest of his life in London. He moved to London in 1922, and they survived the Blitz in Southeast London in the 1940s. After his death, and they were being cared for by his widow. And there's another whole story about the actual notes themselves that needs to be told, the making of the collection, the James Sooth collection, and its fate over time, and how eventually. His widow sold the collection back to Kitty Campbell, who was a noted collector in Durban in the late 1940s. And so they came back actually to South Africa where they belonged in the first place. But there are all sorts of little slips and slides along the way. The, you know, the collection might never have come into existence. Or it might have been lost. It might have been bombed. It might have been bought by some rich Americans. And ended up where, Northwestern, Michigan, somewhere like that. But fortunately, it's in Durban. And it's slowly becoming a standard source, but the most important source on the history of the Guazindo-Natal region before colonial period. It's, you know, it's a must, it just cannot be missed. Again, I should say it's a difficult source to use It's not a narrative history, it's not even a synthesis. It's simply Stuart's notes of what interested his discussants to talk about, what interested him to talk about at any particular time. And so they're disjointed, they move backwards and forwards, they jump from one subject to another, largely in English, but often also in Isisulu. And we translated those in editing the James Stewart Archive. And you know, the more I personally research with the James Stewart archive, the published archive, the more I wish, you know, the more I need to consult the originals. Fortunately, I have my own set of photocopies of originals, the ones that I worked with. But I'm in a very fortunate position that way among researchers. Most of them don't. But it's absolutely essential the, to go back to the originals if one's doing serious research in that period. The James Stewart archive is a very important first pass, as it were, and second pass and third pass into the James Stewart collection in Killy Campbell. But in the end, the final pass is made in Killy Campbell Library itself with the originals. You know, Carolyn Hamilton and I have written together on this subject, and we can't stress too strongly that the James Stewart archive published is not the same thing as the James Stewart collection, even if it's based on that collection. So just a warning to listeners.
2: Yeah, well, those personal experiences with the archive are, um, I mean, as you said, Mongaseni never static, uh, always different, always changing, and those opportunities to be with the archive itself are so, so valuable. Um, I was really intrigued by the fourth part of the book because you bring us to archives that aren't what we might think of as a traditional archive. Rock art and archaeology rather than file boxes and documents. Throughout the book, I felt that you were really prompting the reader to be open to various forms of archives, language, water, rocks. Could one of you share more about the contributions in Part 4 and what led you to include those types of archives in the book?
3: Cynthia, I think you can talk broadly first. Perhaps I can follow after that.
0: Well, I could probably speak for John and me at least not not for Bongoseni because he comes from a slightly different disciplinary angle as he was explaining but John and I are very used to being conventional historians and very text bound so for us, visual stuff is quite challenging. We had to t- be taught in a way to look and to think, not to think of visual material as other than illustration—you know, just a pretty picture of, of rock art or something. But, well, I think John had a better introduction to that than I did. But um, so, but it was so exhilarating to learn to engage with these and to engage with the really interesting debates that exist in, around rock art in South Africa. Um, And so uh, that's why we decided we had to include that. And we had a lot of debates about, does that mean that anything's an archive? Because Bungaseni mentioned thinking about the environment in terms of archive, which is what Mucham does in his chapter in the preceding section. He talks about becoming an environmental historian and the environment becomes his archive. But then does that mean that you could just say that anything was an archive? And we had these long, really amazing debates and kind of tearing out our hair. Um, but yes, that was very exciting and we have a lot of really cutting edge research to work off in South Africa. So that's what I would say in the way of a general introduction.
2: or Mongaseni, do you want to add to that?
1: So I think if I just add again on for... the
3: archaeology side, um, if you're working in the past before colonial times, in southern Africa. The work of archaeologists is just unavoidable. The archaeologists, archaeology as a discipline has been going nearly as long as history has in South Africa since the early 20th century. But they've very largely followed quite separate trails. There was a brief moment in the 1970s when they started coming together. They've largely separated again um and of course i probably hardly need to say that archaeology is a very um esoteric subject for the out for the outsider processes of excavation thinking curating you know, it's got its own disciplinary rules but for the historian working on the past before colonialism in southern africa there's no option if you're a serious scholar but to learn those rules and to some extent to get into what archaeologists do and understand what they do, how they make evidence, what they call evidence, what their archive is. In other words, material objects that are buried in the ground, which they excavate, and then really turn into an archive by curating, sorting, labeling, and giving meaning to, and putting into boxes, which they then label Curate, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That whole process of labelling and curating, as we tried to emphasise in that photo essay in the book, is absolutely essential again to the way of organising knowledge. So one has to learn how to do that to take archaeology as a discipline very seriously, as well as working with um, conventional written documents. And we chose, you know, three scholars there who we knew and who we could rely on to tell a good story, which I think they have all three of them done. You know, Amanda Esserhuis and Jeff Mundell, Justine Vincius. There are many, many other stories that could be told about archaeology by many other archaeologists. But archaeology in South Africa still has a tradition of being done by old white men with beard and in khaki. And these three just very much stand outside that tradition and broken away from it. So that's largely why we chose them. Yeah, and then as far as material objects are concerned, again, we need to think of what the archeologists find as material objects. They put them into museums. These are paralleled by ethnographic objects in museums. And again, the whole story of ethnography in South Africa is one that needs to be taught and told critically. But in my own case, I wasn't interested in objects, material objects. You know, what were these things lying around the museums? They meant nothing. And it really took me being taken in hand by numbers of colleagues in the APC the University of Cape Town, you know, quite late in my career, started educating me into the importance of material objects as archival objects. In other words, showing me that they had a history. And Justine Vincius particularly was important to because she's made a career of writing biographies of material objects, like she does in this book, where she writes the biography of a particular rock painting, and how she traces its story through visiting numbers of archives in South Africa and in Germany. So it's that sort of work that started appealing to me and I began to start understanding a little bit more about how material objects could have historical value in their own right.
2: Fantastic, thank you. Mbongasini, did you wanna add to to that discussion of part four?
1: I was just gonna, I think, mention briefly that um, I mean, actually, it's occurred to me now in this conversation that my own interest has been also in the oral, right, which one cannot capture uh, in a book like this. I mean, there's some in the next section that we'll talk about. There's um, some element of that in Grant McNulty's um, contribution. But um, what's also been fascinating to me over time is to work with material that was recorded in writing in the 19th century and how in some instances that gets re-oralized, right? Um, When it gets taken up by people in the present, which is really the subject, I suppose, of the next section.
2: Yeah, uh, thank you. Well, then maybe we can uh, move to talking about part five, which is called Conflicting Opinions. And there are three contributions here by scholars and teachers who are interested in complicating popular historical narratives. Mongaseni, do you want to start by sharing some of the arguments that those contributors are making?
1: So part five, of course, i mean our contributions by Sinlovu, uh, Himal Ramji and Grant McNulty. And I'm going to focus on Grant McNulty's um, very interesting contribution there. So I mentioned earlier that there's also a, a time in South Africa when histories before colonialism become quite interesting publicly and people become quite interested in rediscovering their histories and remaking their identities. So one of the things that we did alongside, I think, the uh, APC that we've talked about was we, there was also another project um, that was looking at the ways in which um, archival materials were being taken up and used by people in the present, in, the post, in post-apartheid South Africa. Um, and what was happening there is, it was around some of the sort of restorative justice uh, interventions of the post-apartheid government, um, around land reform, for example, and around uh, chieftaincy claims, going back to try and um, undo and redo uh, some of what had been done uh, to political systems in the region by colonial rule. Uh, so the chieftains in disputes and claims uh, where there was a commission that was going back to try and uh, establish who was a legitimate uh, chief in the present so people turned to archives and archives became quite a a, a quite big purchase in in public discourse um in the in the 2000s in fact right up to until the present where some of these um claims and disputes are still ongoing um, and so Magnalti traces um, one of the, the, these groupings that um, the historians of which themselves, um, 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 I mean, come up with very conflicting histories of the same group, partly because um, the archival materials to which they turn and the sources that they use are very different, um, made at different times by different people who themselves were telling the histories of different groups that were in different places geographically at different times. Um, that, that's um, what that particular chapter deals with, and it shows how how present, right? Some of the the, the archival materials become at particular moments because of uh, particular political uh, pressures, because of particular uh, discourses that become popular in the present. So people start reaching uh, um, for archival materials and often, again, reading them very uncritically. And what we're trying to show here, what the authors are trying to show in this section, is that those, I, I mean, uh, certain archives, um, when they get taken up or in case of, um, um, I mean, the, the contribution by uh, how some archives remain neglected um, uh, but when they do become or do uh, gain public attention, they can be taken up in such vastly different ways uh, and be used to tell such vastly different and conflicting stories or how people use different archives to tell different stories and while claiming to be talking about the same thing. Um, that, that's what we've seen, I think, in the present when people begin to reach back Uh, for material that's sitting in in archives and for when when they reach back into different archives that were made at different times
2: thank you then moving on to the final section of the book um, this describes more and illustrates the way that archive is understood and there's a really terrific photo essay that that shows that diversity But I'm interested in how this concluding section brings us back to a question that you ask really early on. Where are the deep conversations about the past? Um, So Cynthia, maybe I'll start by posing this question to you, and then um, others can add on to it. While you speak really clearly about the situation of South Africa, how do you think or hope that non-South African readers might apply the questions you ask to their contexts. What are the lessons about master narratives, historical stereotypes, and archival forms that you hope all readers might apply to their use of archives and their study of history?"
0: Wow, that's a really challenging question, of course. Um, I'll attempt a bit of an answer. I mean, for me, one of the great things about um, doing this book and working with the contributors and John Morgaseni is learning to do uh, what... Uh, and Laura Stola has called reading with the grain as well as reading against the grain. And so John's talked quite a lot about the James Stewart Archive, but we also have the archive that Lisa Creel describes, for example, and Carl Hoffman and his interlocutors, or Sakiba and von Barmelo's interlocutors. And so I began to get a really exciting sense of how uh, these interlocutors can speak to us. And I think Mogasini's indicated that people used to be very sceptical of this being possible and saying, well, no, it's just... Colonial. It's all mediated by colonial agents and so on. But um, I began to get a sense of how you could actually hear these people. So James Stewart, because he was so conscientious, is the best example of that. But you know, I began to ask questions like, "But who were these old men? One of them was 89 years old, and he made this incredibly arduous journey to come and speak to James Stewart. So instead of asking what was James Stewart doing? Why was he wanting to speak to old people about Zulu so-called history? I began to think about, but why did these old people come to talk to him? And um, what were they actually trying to tell him? And why did they think it was so important? And I think those uh, ideas are probably generalizable. I mean, we could only deal with a small section of South African history actually. And so all the time we were conscious that we wanted to uh, suggest certain principles or ideas that could be applied elsewhere elsewhere in the country as well as more broadly, yeah.
2: John, was there anything else that you wanted to share about this project before we wrap up?
3: I'm ready just to say, repeat, I suppose what we've really been talking about this last hour. Um, Yeah, what we're trying to do in the book is show the various kinds of archive that we deal with, and again, it's only a small, small section of archive that we deal with in any detail, but to show it as not inert, it's not just out there to go and be paged through or looked at, and then written about, it's a, archive is a living entity, it's rethought, recatalogued, reworked, relabeled, given new meanings all the time. And so the business of just asking the question, how, is the arch- how was the archive made in the first place? It's fundamentally important. How did it come into existence? And how did some things not come into existence? Equally important if you get it that way. How was the archive made? Why is it being remade? You won't understand it unless you delve deeply into those sort of questions. We get get an idea of where it's coming from and who's saying what and why, how a particular object came to be made, shaped, and why. And then, in parallel with that, and perhaps we could have said more about this, is the problems involved in doing this. Um, you know, it's not just a matter of reading off the page, it's a matter of getting behind the written page if you're dealing so with documents written documents and asking these critical questions about where really the archive comes from but also engaging with the concepts which give it shape and which give your own your own reading of it shape so it's yeah you know, archive is always problematic to use and one has to bear those keep those problems in front all the time in working with the archive? What are the problems of dealing with the source? You can't just take it for granted. I me stop there.
2: Thank you. Vangasini, I will give you the last word here. Is there anything else that you would like to share or other questions that you want uh, folks to be thinking about related to this work?
1: So let me maybe end with, end with two things I want to say. So I think the first thing I want to talk about is, I mean, John and Cynthia um, have indicated how most of the archives we're talking about were made um, in circumstances of colonial domination, and one of the difficulties, um, particularly, um, I mean, the reference Cynthia made uh, to Svistov's work, is also that in engaging. Uh, archives. One is also sometimes looking for one's own story in the archive. You're looking to find your own history in the archive. And the difficulty uh, with engaging with um, uh, archives made in colonial uh, uh, context is precisely what Cynthia was referring to, right? Um, that that you, sometimes you find that they paint your own people in such negative light. And you've got to work through the difficulty, right? To, to be able to engage the archive, you've got to work through the difficulty um, of, of the way in which people you identified with, I identify with are represented in the archive. But you've also then got to get beyond that. And that's partly the work that um, engaging with past, uh, before colonialism, Um uh, uh is is about it, it's partly the work that it asks of us who engage with the archive to do um but the the last thing i also i want to say is this was also i think a very a very difficult book and john and Cynthia could talk um more eloquently about that to make because most of the contributors to the book do not think about the archives they work with in the way that they were asked to do for the book. So, so the, the, the authors themselves were being asked to take a step back from the work, the run-of-the-mill work that they've done, where they are just going in and out of archives, they're reading things back and forth to actually reflect on their journeys with these uh, uh, particular materials, with these particular archives. And, and that made this book, in the, the process of the making of this book itself, Um, a process of deep reflection, a process of engaging with um, the author's own ways, uh, from a bit of a distance, uh, own ways of working with these archives. And so I think uh, John and Cynthia would agree that uh, from when you conceptualized the book to when we actually got the book published, it took many, many years. (laughs) Because many people just do not think about the materials they work with in the ways that um, we've asked authors to do for this book.
2: Fantastic. I hope that process of reflection that you engaged folks with um, for writing this book is inspiring to to other um, people working on other projects. Well, Cynthia, John, and Bongaseni, thank you so much for your time today. And once again, my guests today are the editors of Archives of Time's Past, published by Vitz University Press. My name is Jen Hoyer, and you are listening to the Scholarly Communications channel of the New
0: Books Network.